Hello, welcome to GM Crypto with the Coin Fund team. We've spent years as a multi-strategy investment firm focused on blockchain. So join us to unpack complex ecosystem trends and hear from the founders shaping the future of Web3. Please subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Twitter at CoinFund underscore IO. Please note that none of the following should be taken as investment advice. See coinfund.io slash disclaimers for more important information. Hello, everyone, and welcome to GM Crypto with the CoinFund team. I'm Kelsey, the CMO, and today we have Evan, Partner and Director of Research, and Ladina, one of our investment and research analysts. So thank you both for being here today. We're going to be talking through gaming as well as our recent trip to ETH Amsterdam. But I'd like to kick it off with a little overview of different gaming genres by Evan. Would love to hear your thoughts here. Thanks, Kelsey. It's great to be here. This is a topic that I think is important because the word gaming means different things to different people. It's almost a Rorschach test. So whenever I speak with founders or even fellow peers about their thesis on gaming and what they're looking to build, I try to drill down a little bit more into the gameplay that they are constructing. As people might or might not know, there are a couple of different popular genres where we're seeing development, the first of which is more the auto-battler category. The overview here is these are the types of games that have light RPG or role-playing elements, but mostly are hands-off. So think in Alluvium, where you initially construct a team, but then the CPUs are battling themselves in a way that doesn't require much player input. Another type of auto-battler is what we've seen where an individual player character may be equipped with different items, but then they go off to fight monsters without needing much interaction. The reason we've started to see these start coming to market is because they are relatively easy to build. But at the same time, I think longer term, I do worry somewhat about the ability to retain player engagement because they are relatively easy. And so the skill ceiling is also relatively low. Another genre that we've seen in gaming is the card strategy game. So think Axie Infinity is also an example of a card game because the move pool that you start with is driven by the cards that you own. And these are drawn and played throughout the course of a game. Another one that is more popular recently would be Sky Weavers, which is more similar to Gods Unchained and even Hearthstone. Now we get to some of the role-playing games that exist, and a lot of these look at World of Warcraft or Diablo as examples that they are building towards. And then lastly, the genre that I think is most popular in traditional gaming is the the shooter genre. And this is split into first-person shooters as well as third-person, and really just that is driven by the camera angle that the game devs look to lock the player into. There are advantages and disadvantages to each of these, but I think overall, zooming out, I feel like there is room in Web3 gaming for all genres to be successful, but there are probably differences in mapping how well each of these genres will take on Web3 characteristics because of how there are differences in in the itemization and the gameplay that each of these genres can pack in. Some lend themselves better to Web3 characteristics. Others don't necessarily, and I don't see much incremental value from just shoving Web3 technologies into a specific type of game. 
I think that makes a lot of sense, Evan. And and what's the current experience of, say, some of these first-person shooter-type games? What's it like to play one? And is there a certain category that you think currently is the furthest along when it comes to Web3 gaming? Yes. So right now, the games that are furthest along in Web3 are more on the auto-battler and card side of things, mostly because they don't have to deal with the technology challenge of real-time combat. That's always very hard. In traditional game development, the most difficult titles to release are are those like Battlefield 2042 or Call of Duty Warzone because the player expectations for low ping and high combat realism is very challenging to build. You need 3D models, you need animations, good sound design, etc. So we've actually seen very little good shooters launch so far. Conversely, I do believe that this is a genre that will capture a lot of incremental attention and mindshare going forward. One of our investments that has yet to be announced is a third-person shooter that we're very excited about. But even looking at what's in the public realm, something like Shrapnel, which we've been paying attention to, is exciting to see because the game developers there are very focused on bringing over the same quality of experience while also understanding that there are elements of Web3, specifically player-owned assets and marketplaces that are particularly compelling and likely to extend the player longevity within the title and the universe, but also improve the monetization potential compared to a more standard you know, loot box or cosmetic-driven monetization, which is how a lot of these games are, are being monetized today in Web2. Yeah, Evan. And do you feel like the App Store roadblock is keeping folks from engaging with these games more? Tell us a little bit more about that, please. Yeah, absolutely. I think the current environment for these app stores, whether on iOS or Android, is serving as a speed bump, but one that I view as temporary and not permanent. What I mean by that is having spoken with both developers in Web 2 and Web 3 on the game design side, but also asking around about some of these conversations that have happened between the game devs and representatives from the app stores, what I've found is most of the app store reticence has come about from them being nervous about money transmission licensing requirements and classifications. So there actually appears to us to be a path through the abstraction of intermediary assets that maybe allows Web3 to find a way to get to this market that is very large, especially since most are mobile and on phones that are now capable of running the technology, the backends. But overall, we do believe part of that chasm will also be crossed by some of these developers having those relationships with the app stores. So some of the games that are now in development are by folks that have AAA backgrounds, and those backgrounds actually also include connectivity to the app stores themselves. So overall, I do expect longer term for even Web3 games to move away from the in-browser rendering to a more native experience. But for the time being, this roadblock does appear to be a speed bump, but we expect that the most successful games in the future will be able to route around or at least provide comfort to these app stores in a way that allows them to go to market there. I agree, Evan. And you touched on an interesting thing about developers and incentives. And I know that's something Ladina has been considering as 
this creator economy develops outside of just the gaming ecosystem. So Ladina, can you share some of your thoughts around how that's been evolving and, and how Archway maybe comes into all of this? For sure. So I guess historically, when we see kind of blockchains think through how they're incentivizing growth, the primary focus is typically going on compensating validators for kind of like doing computational work. And then projects will kind of come in and think really hard about how to incentivize communities to kind of like to have that flywheel of consumer stickiness. What we haven't really seen as much is thinking about adding value to the people that are creating most of the value, which is the developers. I think last year we spent a lot of time kind of thinking about the creator economy and kind of onboarding Web2 creators and like really having like that Web3 touch kind of help them out where like Web2 social media had failed them in not necessarily incentivizing them to... I guess, like stick to one platform or really they are just like disenfranchised. So I think in kind of extending that to developers now is kind of like these creators. We've seen projects like Archway that have been focused on the Cosmos ecosystem tackle this from kind of like a more productized or like protocolized way where they're working on developing kind of a smart contract layer to bake in a rerouting of gas fees where they can kind of take some of this and either help bootstrap new developers on Cosmos to kind of like help pay themselves. They can be a little bit creative and kind of like routing this to a DAO where there's additional flexibility there. Or if they don't necessarily want to take compensation, they can make their product more user-friendly by manipulating that gas fee so that the project is eating it themselves to kind of like help get over that mental friction for the user in the very early stages. And so really, I think they're going to be focusing on helping developers that wouldn't traditionally have access to VC funding. So people like me that are women, people of color, people that don't have like these SF connections. And it also allows us to kind of have developers on board that can afford to be a little bit more experimental and kind of like develop really cool, playful products. So I was really excited to kind of like interact with the Archway team in Amsterdam and kind of like learn more about how they're tackling that. And I think they're going to have some awesome announcements on the way. But so far, they've had overwhelming interest in their test net and their waitlist is, you know, a lot longer than they anticipated. So really awesome to kind of see their growth there. And I, I guess like talking about Near, I've just been like, really amazed at kind of like their, I guess, like more ecosystem fund approach. So I guess like we could kind of think through developer efforts as kind of like this productized approach that Archway has, and then kind of this more hands-on approach that the Near Ecosystem Fund has. I think they do an incredible job on the technical layer by having like what I hear from developers to be kind of like the best developer toolkit experience. And so there's kind of like that initial onboarding experience coupled with their really web two user-friendly wallet that makes it a great candidate for new developers. And then we also have kind of like 
people like Cameron and Nora that are working with these engineers to help connect them with either relevant market makers or other people that are building in the ecosystem and then helping amplify them through BD and marketing too. So I think that's been an ecosystem where I'm really kind of excited by just like the sustainability of that effort and kind of like maintaining developer health. Yeah, I love how they're fitting those different pieces together as well to provide that full experience for those ecosystems and their their communities. And I'd really like to hear from both of you since the three of us just got back from Amsterdam even just a few days ago at the time of this recording. But what were some of your other hot takes from the conversations you had at the various events? It was, for those who weren't there, it was DevConnect and ETH Amsterdam. And DevConnect was a collection of different side events with a wide range of, of focus from but the shelling point event that was was quite popular to evening gatherings to number of different communities on boats as well in the canals. And I would like to hear a couple hot takes from both of you around what you learned. Thanks, Kelsey. One set of hot takes that I have is that overall, there was a mix of positive and negative takeaways that I had personally from my time there. The first is that I think on the market side, expectations remain pretty low and bearish. There is specifically a complaint that I heard from many other investors that there's a real lack of new narratives to get excited about that might be able to reinflect our sentiment into a more bullish one as a market. There were some positive data points about cross-chain or omni-chain technologies, as well as you know, specifically Layer Zero and Stargate Buzz. And gaming, as we talked about earlier, is, is a theme that people are generally excited about. But contrasting that, I think there is increasingly the data that a lot of folks are, are quite overcommitted in crypto, uh, whether it's founders that are also busy angel investing or people on the biz dev and marketing side wearing many hats for different projects, there is a labor market string that I hope is solved in the future as new folks from Web 2 and elsewhere make their way into Web 3. On that point, I do think, especially on the developer side, there are many new faces, some locals that would otherwise not have made it out to a DevConnect event were there and participating in the different hackathons. I think that was very positive. But overall, I do think that there continues to be a need for not only more developers and investors and and business-minded folks to come in, but at the same time, for those people to focus their attention on projects and products that are more likely to capture that incremental mass market segment, meaning that there were still people, because of how new they were, were gravitating towards ideas that have already been tested and less likely to be as successful in capturing a market. And I'd rather see those people find their way into projects that are getting ready to scale and attack a more novel market segment or leveraging technology that is more durable versus the ones that they might initially be ideating around. Yeah. And did you have any final thoughts to add, Ladina? Yeah, I think we're in a part of the market where a lot of where we're seeing new entrants or Web2 founders come in is at the application layer. And a lot of what that's looking like is more permutation than necessarily kind of like ideating on a true market need. And so 
we're seeing, you know, really high volume of projects working on gaming or NFT interfaces, kind of no-code platforms that are Web2 friendly, but really where a lot of the VC interest is, is in kind of like this year's latest trend, which is cross-chain and interoperability solutions. And so we're seeing that a lot of those rounds are getting pretty heated, overinflated. So kind of an idea that we were bouncing around with other VCs in Amsterdam is kind of like this question of what does the market look like when these infrastructure projects come to market? And really, we see these very expensive rounds that we're able to fill up because VCs were so cash rich actually become liquid and how does the retail or other parts of the market kind of internalize things of that size. And so I'm kind of curious to see how that ends up turning out later in the year. But definitely, I think people are being a little bit more creative with with infrastructure now and realizing that it has to be a service that's built externally that we can't rely on individual founders to kind of like give us a strong answer for their interoperability solutions or what is their multi-chain thesis and it's something that has to be tackled from the outside yeah absolutely and that is our time for today thank you evan and ladina so much for joining us this week and we'll have you both on again soon thanks for having us this is great thanks kelsey it's a pleasure thanks Thanks.